0: Well, thank you so much for uh, your friendship and your fellowship. It's been a wonderful, wonderful conference. I've had the privilege of being at, I think, ten Kelvin conferences this year. (laughs) (laughs) This has got to be uh, right there at the top. Uh, The fellowship, the the addresses we've heard. I just felt like going home after the last one. You probably did, too. (laughs) When... Originally, we got our assignments for this conference, done. I think it was Robert Shivens that sent us the paperwork, and there was a paragraph beneath each one sort of telling us what he wanted us to cover. The opening address had a pretty long paragraph, but the last address just said behind it, self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> This is the second reason why we can go home now. Because you know what it is. It's the power of the preached word. It's self-explanatory. So I'm not going to say anything profound. Think of it more as a pep talk, a farewell talk at the end of a conference. It's just something to encourage you to believe in preaching. I think that's what Calvin does. And when we look at Calvin, he's such a preacher... Such an exegete. The last thing in the world I want to do in this closing talk is make you feel guilty that you're not Calvin. None of us are Calvins. But a man's reach must exceed his grasp for what's a heaven for. And so let's use Calvin to stretch ourselves. And let's use Calvin to encourage ourselves. If you can leave this last address, just believing a little bit more in preaching, I'll be very satisfied, and I'll have met my goal. Calvin had a very high view of preaching. He said preaching was the most excellent of all things commended by God, and it must be held in the highest esteem among men. He also said it's not only a lofty calling; it's a powerful calling, powerful. Not because it's merely impressive or affecting people through undiscerning and empty shows of rhetoric. But because preaching is anointed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit, which alone is truly powerful, says Calvin, is the kind of preaching. Preaching Christ through the Spirit that all times require. Also 21st century. And so Calvin taught that real power in preaching is inseparable from the Holy Spirit. Nothing in the world, he writes, is so powerful as the faithfully preached word of God by the Holy Spirit. I looked up the word power and powerful in the Oxford Dictionary. and This is what it said. Power or powerful refers to a quality or property that has the ability to do or affect something, or to act upon a person or thing. Something that is powerful possesses might, vigor, and energy. It has force of character and produces an effect. Well, in the case of true preaching, it empowers and strengthens people, savingly, spiritually, and Calvin would add, practically. So he writes, preaching is an instrument for effecting the salvation of the faithful, And though it can do nothing without the Spirit of God, yet through the Spirit's inward operation, preaching produces the most powerful effects. So you see what Calvin's doing. He wants to separate man-made preaching, noisy preaching, from Spirit-anointed preaching. As we glean what he says about preaching, I'd like to suggest to you that there are ten reasons why Calvin says that spirit-anointed preaching is powerful. I'm going to spend a fair bit of time on the first one, so when I say number two, don't get alarmed. We will get through the ten more quickly. Reason number one. Faithful preaching is powerful because it allows the Word of God to set the agenda. This is big in Calvin. It allows the Word of God to set the agenda. That's why we heard yesterday that when Calvin came back after three years of being exiled from Geneva, came back on his second round, he picked up where he left off because the Word of God Set the agenda. He writes, the whole task of a minister is limited to the ministry of God's word. Their whole wisdom to the knowledge of his word and their whole eloquence to the proclamation of his word. And he goes on to say, a rule is prescribed to all of God's servants that they bring not their own inventions at any time, but simply deliver as from hand to hand what they have received. From God. Did you ever think of preaching that way? Hand to hand. You get it from God's hand through the Word, by the enlightening power of the Spirit, and you hand it off to your people. One point Calvin said preachers are like the spies, the two true spies that come back with a good report from the land. And every week, you see, we're in the scriptures searching around and we we bring the grapes of school the next Saturday. And we bring a good report of the land. From hand to hand. Mouth to mouth, he also says. Lips to lips, he even says at one point. We pass it on to our people. And so every true minister of the gospel, says Kelvin, should want to preach faithfully and frequently. Well, Kelvin preached frequently. Preach from the New Testament on Sunday mornings, Psalms on Sunday afternoons, and the Old Testament on six, at 6 a.m. on five weekdays every other week. Nearly 4,000 sermons in Geneva, 170 a year on average. And on his deathbed, when friends asked him, What's the most important thing you've ever done in your life? He didn't say, Writing. He didn't say, Being at the helm of the Reformation. In continental Europe, he simply said, preaching. Calvin set up the entire Genevan system to emphasize preaching. The Genevan ordinance stipulated that Sunday sermons be preached in each of the three churches at daybreak and again at 9 a.m. The children were catechized at noon, and a third sermon was then preached in each church at 3 p.m. During the week, sermons were preached on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at varying hours of the day so that you could go hear six sermons a week. By the time Calvin died, one sermon at least was preached in every church in Geneva every day of the week. Saturdays inclusive. Calvin believed in preaching. How sad it is today when ministers say, "Well, I only want to preach once on Sunday." <laughs> it's so un-Calvinistic not to want to preach. In our tradition, we, quite frankly, ministers were never supposed to not preach on Sunday. That's just the way we grew up, and so that's deeply embedded in us. And now I have a full-time colleague. The last ten years, and there's been maybe a handful of Sundays where I haven't preached at all. We have a visiting minister, and I just sat in a pew the whole day and inevitably people come up to me and say, it must be so wonderful for you today not to preach. I never know how to answer that. It's, it's, it's got to be in your blood, you see. You, you live to preach. I can, say, I can say this much. I can say I'd rather die than that. And I think every preacher can say that to some measure. Can't you? Woe unto me. If I preach not the gospel, I want to do it frequently. Spurgeon once said, when someone asked, how could I be a better preacher? He said, do it more often. (laughs) Someone came to him and said, how can I pray better in the pulpit? He said, pray more in secret. Don't become better preachers by just preaching once a week. Preach frequently. Look for opportunities to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. But Calvin also preached faithfully. Faithfully. Setting those boundaries by the word. As soon as men depart, even in the smallest degree, from God's word, Calvin writes, they cannot preach anything but falsehoods, vanities, impostures, errors, and deceits. The reason why is because the preacher, all by himself, apart from the word, is also a foolish, sinful man and can't trust himself. And that's why when Calvin was on his deathbed and he actually apologized to the people that came to see him for his, as Ian Hamilton said, volcanic temper and for any other faults he had, he did say this, but one thing I can say. I have never knowingly falsified or twisted any scripture throughout my entire 30 years of ministry. He was a man who set an agenda around himself, and he would not transgress that boundary. So he preached, preached consecutively. He preached 353 sermons on Isaiah, 200 on Deuteronomy, 189 on Acts, 174 on Ezekiel, 159 on Job, 123 on Genesis, hundred and seven on First Samuel. In the last fifteen years of his life, he preached to Judges, Second Samuel, First Kings Psalms, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Micah, Zephaniah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Daniel, The Harmony of the Gospels, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Imagine if you had sat under that ministry in the last fifteen years of Calvin's life. Through all these series, you heard him always hone you down, always fence you in by the word. In fact, Calvin was so word bound; that he didn't even take a theme or points. Well, he stated sometimes what was the main thrust of the text. And there was some semblance of order. his sermons. But really, his sermons lacked major points. They weren't self-contained units. That might be a a drawback in his preaching in some ways. But his sermon structure was still embedded in the text itself. And his verse-by-verse explanation, even though it was kind of the ancient church father homily style, it still had definite assets that prevented him from skipping over difficult and controversial subjects. And it ensured his people that the whole counsel of God would be heard. Now, because the word of God set his agenda, Calvin was a careful exegete, a clear expositor, a faithful applier of the word of God. But he used all kinds of devices to make that word come alive, to make it three-dimensional. Steve Lawson says in his great little book, Calvin, the genius expositor of the word, He says he used familiar words, vivid expressions, provocative questions, simple restatements, limited quotations, an unspoken outline, seamless transitions, focused, intensity. And always, as he's exegeting, he's getting to application. In fact, John Gerstner once said, sometimes it seems like Calvin is so eager to get to application, he shortchanges you on exegetes. He's hurrying to get there. And as soon as he makes the transition, you know it. He says, well, this ought to teach us today. Or what we can learn from this. Or what we can take from this. He's got all these expressions. And you know immediately he's moving into application. Now, Calvin believed that the whole word of God is very diverse. So you'll have a lot of diversity when you fence yourself in by the word of God. And you'll have a lot of different tasks as a minister. He has one paragraph here that's absolutely beautiful. He says, let let the ministers boldly dare all things, dare all things by the word of God, of which they are constituted administrators. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ by the word. Let them devastate Satan's reign by the word. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious by the word. Let them bind and loose. Let them thunder and lightning if necessary. But let them do all according to the word of God. Now if you take that, you can see how Calvin moves from that by extension to all of worship being confined to Scripture. The regulative principle flows out of that And since we heard a lot about that already, I won't repeat this material, but simply to say this, that for Calvin, you see, worship and preaching are inseparable. To go to sermon, as some of the Scottish used to put it in old times, is to go to worship. Worship for Calvin is simplicity. Worship for Calvin is biblical simplicity. It is reverent simplicity. But worship is also, as we heard last hour, spiritual ascent. It's not only the word supper, Calvin says, that we lift lifted up on high. Every doctrine we preach ought to lift us up. In our Dutch liturgy, in our Lord's Supper, we have this wonderful phrase, just as the minister is about to go to the table. It says, let us not cling to this earthly bread and wine, but let us lift up our hearts on high to the right hand of the Father, whither all the articles of our faith do lead us. That's vintage Calvin. You know right away that form is Calvinistic. You see, everything goes up to Christ. And in worship, that's the whole goal. And in preaching, that's the whole goal. To lift a believer up to Christ. Whether it be by admonishment or encouragement or invitation or comfort, the goal is to bring us to Jesus by that Spirit, as we heard so eloquently put last hour. Well, Calvin did this in little chunks and pieces. He said when you preach the Word, you've got to be a father who divides the loaf of bread for his children, giving to the smaller smaller mouths smaller bites, the bigger mouths bigger bites. So you notice this diversity in Calvin. Sometimes his language is so simple a child can understand. Other times he's so profound that the most mature will learn and grow. And we need wisdom, Calvin says, to reach all people of all ages. It's a phenomenal thing. You're preaching to a five-year-old and you're preaching to a 95-year-old. You need wisdom to be that father, to break up the bread. The word of God, feed each mouth according to each person's need. Calvin did that usually in four or five verses from the Old Testament at a time usually only two or three verses from the New Testament. Sermons were 40 to perhaps 60 minutes long, max. But they were shortened a bit, and he spoke fairly slowly, probably because of an asthmatic condition. Other scholars say he spoke slowly, giving long pauses to allow people to think. Because, as Baza put it, every word from Kelvin weighed a pound. People need to think through what he was saying. His style was plain and clear and sense terse. He said we must shun all unprofitable babbling and stay ourselves upon plain teaching which is the most forcible and the most coveted. When he was accused once of babbling in his sermons Calvin replied that he stuck to the main point of the text and practiced cautious brevity. But everywhere you go, you see, Calvin is hemming himself in. It's always application, 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 following exegesis, exegesis, exegesis. So T.H.L. Parker says, this is the best way to summarize his sermons. First he prays, then he gives a quick review of where he left off last time, then he gives you his text, the main thought of the text, and then his first point of exegesis, application. Exegesis, application, probably 10 times throughout the sermon. No three point sermons, no four point sermons, but exegeting and applying. And then, when the time is up, he says, Well, we'll continue there next week. And he closes with prayer. So people feel, just like at a prayer meeting, one prayer is to go into the next prayer. And really, it's one long corporate prayer. In a sense, Calvin's preaching was like that. It was like the sermon was never done. It was just going to continue the next time you met together. And in a sense, that's what it ought to be. Sermons are always continuing. You know the old story. I think it's a Scottish story of a guy who came home from church a little earlier than usual. His wife was home ill and she heard the back door and she said, Donald, is the sermon done already? That's you? Is the sermon done already? He said, it's me, my dear, but the sermon is not done has been said, but has yet to be done. And I think that's Calvin's approach. Sermons have to be lived. Sermons have to be fleshed out. And just as a sermon has to stay within the confines of the word of God, so our lives have to accordingly be fenced in by the word of God. Now the beauty of Calvin is that in, in the midst of this incredible deluge of opposition that he got for years and decades, He keeps on in this goal and never changes one with his conviction that the Word of God sets the agenda. He doesn't try new things. Just the Word of God. And in the end, it wins the day. From 1555 onward, yes, he still faced opposition. But the last nine years of his life, there was a majority on the town council that supported him. And he was able to work primarily from a positive framework. These were the years, the last nine years, when he wrote the most books, when he was able to do the most from the pulpit and in the academy, and in print, and even in consulate. What a blessing. Despite all his sicknesses, those last nine years must have been for him. As he saw gradually the people of Geneva, at least greater percentages of them, being won over to the preaching of the word of God. what a lesson for us. Persevere. Gradually. Gradually. The word will often, not always, the Spirit is sovereign, but often will win the day. We had a minister in our churches who I used to say this, he said, you go to a church, he said the first year is a honeymoon. Everything's wonderful. They love you. You love the church. Second year, they begin to know your faults. You begin to know their faults. Third year, crisis time. Fourth year, you don't know if you're going to make it through. And he said, that's exactly when a lot of ministers leave, year four, just when they should stay the course. So if they make it through year four and through five, year six and on, you see, people are saying, this minister's never going to leave. And everybody who's really opposed to you will leave. And this is when you can actually have the most effective ministry. Because then from year six on, he said, people actually hear you. No. They actually hear the word before they're listening to you. And that's the point. You want to stay long enough till they're really hearing the word. Grasping the word. Living by the word. And Kelvin stayed the course. A hireling Chris. A good shepherd. Presses on. And so, that it be an encouragement to you to press on in preaching. And God can, God can bring a great day of great things. You sure don't know when it will happen. You heard about that Chinese bamboo tree? For four years, it doesn't grow an inch, and then it shoots up 60 feet in one year. And that's how preaching can be. Sometimes we see no fruit on our labors. We get discouraged. But press on, and God may bring a day of greater things. Reason number two. Faithful preaching is powerful Because it proclaims the scriptures authoritatively. See, the primary motivation of Calvin's preaching was theological. It was the conviction that so long as preaching did not depart from scripture, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And Calvin rooted this conviction in the notion of the Old Testament prophet. He said, God does not normally speak in Old Testament times through thunder but through his prophets. As a true prophet spoke God's word, God so intimately identified with what the prophet spoke that the prophet's mouth became God's mouth. And speaking about Haggai's words to arouse the people to build the temple, he goes on and says, the word of God is not distinguished from the word of the prophet. The message of the prophet obtained as much power as though God descended from heaven and had given manifest, manifest tokens Of his presence. As if God spoke (coughs) nigh to them face to face. And then Calvin goes on to say in the New Testament, God's word is also proclaimed by messengers, especially preachers of the gospel who have a very similar role to play. Commenting on Isaiah 11 verse 4, he says, When the prophet says, By the breath of his lips, this must not be limited to the person of Christ, For it refers to the word which is preached by his ministers. Christ acts by them still today in such a manner that he wishes their mouth to be reckoned as his mouth and their lips. As his lips. Our people need to be told that in judicious ways. That when ministers preach the word of God, true to the word of God, This is as if God was in their midst, speaking to them. The very Word of God. Now, why in the world would God do this? Through sinful lips. Calvin addresses this in many places. Many places. I think it can be condensed down into three quick thoughts. Number one, God does this to provide for our weakness, Calvin says. He addresses us in a human fashion in order to draw us to himself rather than to thunder at us from heaven and drive us away. But secondly, he uses human ministers to exercise our humility. And he says this, and this, will, this ought to humble us. For when a puny man, risen from the dust, speaks in God's name, at this point, we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, although the minister excels us in nothing. You see, we're just ordinary people. But we're authoritatively ordained to bring the word of God. So God is actually testing his people. Are you willing to receive my word from a puny minister who's a sinful man? Who doesn't excel you in any way. And thirdly, the human ministry... Says Kelvin, serves as a bond of union between believers, knitting the church together in a cohesive community. For if each person were able to interpret the written scripture for himself, each would go off on his own and despise the others. But God brings all believers together and they coalesce, as it were, around the ministry of the word. So the ministry of the word becomes like a sinew that holds tissue and bones together in the body. What a message to ministers. We ought to be, through the word, we ought to be a unifying factor among our people as much as possible. Not a distraction, and divisive person in our character. So preaching is the word of God for two important reasons, says Kelvin. First, preaching is the word of God because the content of preaching is the exposition and interpretation of that word. The canon of Scripture has been long closed. He goes on to say, the age of special revelation was complete after John wrote Revelation. So the preached word never rivals the written word, but it derives its authority from the written word. It's thus called the word of God, and this is Calvin's words, derivatively or by association. And yet that authority is absolute as long as the preacher preaches scripturally. Since due to the testimony of the Spirit... Scripture, whether read or spoken and expounded, calls for complete credence and total submission. And so preaching has no authority in itself, but rather borrows its authority from the written word. And Calvin really, I think, leaned on Luther in that regard. Luther said to preachers, the only reason why you have a right for anyone to listen to you is because you're bringing them the Word of God. If you're not going to bring them the Word of God, they should just walk out. You've got no authority. God does not wish, said Calvin, to be heard, but by the voice of his ministers. So in preaching, God is speaking to us. And secondly, preaching is the Word of God because the preacher's called to it. He's appointed to it. He's sent by God to this task. He's ordained as the herald of Christ. And thus he has the authority and the responsibility to speak in Christ's name. He must convey that by his whole demeanor, by his speaking style, by his humility, that he himself is submitting himself to the Word of God. And what a task that is. It's one of the greatest challenges, frankly, in, in, in being a seminary professor. You, you, you get students and they stand up and they just very few students at the beginning when they begin to speak very few of them have this sense from the pulpit that they're speaking the word of God they don't have authority you have to counsel them and direct them And gradually you see as God matures and prepares them for regular pulpit ministry you see this this authority coming into them as it were and they're being anointed by the spirit as you encourage them in that direction It's a wonderful thing to see. But it's a terrifying thing to have such authority. It's an overwhelming, incredible thing. Authority from the Word, how it ought to humble us. And it did Calvin. T.H.L. Parker says For Calvin, the message of Scripture is sovereign not only over the congregation, but it's sovereign over the preacher. His humility is shown by his own submission to this authority. And you see, if you want power in the Word of God, but the people don't see that you're submitting to what you say, or you can joke around five minutes after you preach a sermon, you take away your own authority and your own effectiveness. And the net result is, when people come to church, not so of an itinerant minister who comes and goes, But when you are the settled minister, you see, really when they listen to you, they're filtering subconsciously in their mind to a grid everything they know about you. And if they sense you're not living what you preach, you're not a transcript of your sermons, you lose the authority in speaking. Now, because of this authority, this word must never be handled lightly or jokingly But always with the greatest of reverence, Calvin believed that this this compelled ministers to have three critical prerequisites: great reverence for the word. You don't ever find Calvin joking about the word, do you? Even joking about texts off cuff, off the pulpit. You don't find him joking about Abraham. We live in a day today where ministers joke about everything. It's not good. You find, secondly, soul preparation. Calvin was exercised with preaching. And you find hard work. Hard work. How Calvin did it, we don't know with everything else he had to do. It's kind of mysterious how he prepared all these sermons so thoroughly. All we know is that he did it, somehow. And he said to his people, If I could enter the pulpit without deigning to look at a book, and should frivolously think to myself, oh well, when I preach, God will give me enough to say and come here without troubling to read or think what I ought to declare to you. And do not carefully consider I must apply Holy Scripture to your edification. I should be an arrogant upstart. So when he preached extemporaneously, it doesn't mean he didn't pray much and didn't prepare thoroughly. He just had an astounding memory. And relied upon, relied upon the Spirit of God to give him the wisdom he needs. This is what we need today. This sense of authority that comes through hard work, careful, serious reverence for the word, earnest prayer, our lives exemplifying what we preach. We must come into the pulpit as a man sent by God. As one who knows what his business is about. We must come with a certain amount of fire in our belly as well. Conviction and passion and zeal for what we have to bring. We come and we just talk like we're talking to our neighbor next door. It won't come across like we're believing that we are men sent by God to declare the word of God. We are bringing matters that our life and death, says Calvin. This ought not be a chore to us. This ought to be our life. I am constrained to preach the gospel, said Paul. Preaching is not. It is not a ticket to an easy middle class job. It's not a way of attaining the respect and admiration of others. It's a holy, almighty, terrific, authoritative calling. So Calvin says this, God's servants ought to speak from the inmost affections of their heart. See, powerful preaching begins deep inside. It begins It begins when a man meets God in the inner closet. It begins when you're preparing that sermon and you're sitting at your computer trying to organize your thoughts and you get down on your knees and you're back up at the computer and down on your knees and back up at the computer and you're wrestling and you come to that point. I like to compare it to a woman in childbirth where she despairs and you think, This sermon can't come forth to birth. And yet you wrestle on, and then it breaks through. And you say, "God, thank you again. Thank you for opening your word to me again." And you go on the pulpit. Sometimes eager to preach. Sometimes burdened. All kinds of emotions running through you. But you know that you need God twice. You need the Spirit twice. You need Him in the study. And you need Him on the pulpit again. And so you go. You go in confidence, knowing that the Spirit won't desert you. But you go in weakness and fear and trembling. Because you're going to handle the Word of God. So you get this curious Pauline mixture as you ascend the pulpit, going on inside of you. You're strong. Expectant. God's Word will not return void. vain. And yet you're weak. Who am I? Speak the word of God. I don't know if you get this, but maybe if I could just be autobiographical just a moment here. But I get it probably, I don't know, four or six times a year, something like that. I just get overwhelmed, just overwhelmed on the way to church that I don't know. I actually don't know anything. And I just can't preach. I'll get very quiet, and as we're going to church, my, my wife will look at me and she'll say, "You've got it again, don't you?" She'll lay her hand on my arm. And she'll say, it's okay. the Lord will help you." One more time. One more time. In our tradition, of course, we—the Dutch tradition—you probably know that the minister stands at the foot of the pulpit before he sends. The pulp and he turns his back to the people and has a quiet prayer. What a disaster those prayers are sometimes. Oh Lord, one more time. Help me one more time. Weakness, weakness. And yet, an expectation at the same time. It's mysterious, isn't it? You can't put it into words. Because you know you've been given the authority, but it's in a human clay pot. Oh, God, help me. So many times, I can only pray there at the bottom of the pulpit. Power, Lord! Power, Lord! And then sometimes I think of my congregation, you know how poor my prayers were there. They laughed me to scorn. Then once I read in George Whitfield's journal, before he went to preach, all he could say was, Power, Lord! Power, Lord! I was really encouraged. We're to be authoritative. And yet we're so weak and we're so needy. But I think God does that purposely to us so that we recognize our total and our radical dependence upon Him as we ascend the Pope. Knowing that we, who well we? We are called to be souls of the Word of God. And to make use, says Calvin, of all our exertions, because God employs us as his instruments for cultivating his field so that he alone acts by us and in us and through us. That's amazing. What an authority. A minister who stops trembling at the thought of preaching is a minister who's lost his sense of authority. It's a powerful preaching is authoritative, authoritative preaching. Reason number three. Faithful preaching is powerful because it co-labors with the Holy Spirit. We can be shorter here because of what we heard last hour. But let me say this to you. Calvin that in every sermon, there are really two ministers. He called the physical minister the external minister and the other minister the internal minister. And he says, these ministers work together. The external minister holds forth the vocal word, and it's received by the ears, he writes. But the internal minister truly communicates the thing proclaimed, which is Jesus Christ. So, word and spirit are organically united here. And the minister is the instrument, the human instrument. (coughs) that preaches the Word and the Spirit organically comes in the Word. And especially when the minister goes to preach Christ. You see, the Spirit loves to take things of Christ and show them to us. And it says that the Spirit is waiting with holy eagerness to, till the minister gets to Christ to bring it home with power and comfort and joy to the believer. And had a lady in my church and she'd often say to me, it took too long last Sunday to get to Christ. Took you 12 minutes, Pastor. Should have been there sooner. Get to Christ. That's when we get comforted. Well, I don't know if Kelvin always did that either. That quickly. But the point is this, you see. The Spirit loves when a minister preaches Christ. And he joins himself. And that preaching comes home with power. But again, you see, that preaching must always be in line with the Word. It's not mystical. Apart from the Word... Calvin actually opposed three groups in Europe who separated the Spirit from the Word. There were the enthusiasts who believed the Spirit would speak directly apart from the Word. Then there were people who said, all we've got to do is read the Bible on our own. We don't need ministers at all. No, said Calvin. Ministers are God's gift to the church and are commissioned by God to help you understand the Word. And third, of course, there was the Roman Catholic Church which taught that congregation should unquestioningly accept everything taught by clergy and not bring it back to test it by the word. Reason number four. Faithful preaching is powerful because it guarantees the church's fruitfulness. There's a great deal to say here, but let me just briefly summarize it in three thoughts that are quite common. You know it quite well, I think. Preaching is the heart of worship. Preaching is the heart of worship. And worship will be fruitful. But worship must never sacrifice preaching or be seen apart from preaching. And so we must jealously guard, Kelvin says, in our liturgy, preaching time. This is one of the great veins of radio preaching. They only allow you 30 minutes on the radio, so your sermon can't be more than 30 minutes. That's nonsense. You've got to allow time for preaching, said Calvin. No other element of worship should be allowed to impinge upon this sacred time of expounding the Word of God. Number two, preaching converts sinners. And we must preach accordingly. Calvin was constantly evangelistic in his sermons. For Calvin, actually, the definition of evangelism wasn't just to reach the unsaved, he even included in his definition building up believers in the most holy faith. And he believed that when you warned the unbelievers, the believers also would be edified. And when you comforted the believers, the unbelievers would be provoked to jealousy. And so you're always preaching evangelistically. A very broad definition of evangelistic preaching. And thirdly, preaching edifies the saints. This is, of course, one of Calvin's greatest goals, if not the greatest, to glorify God through the edification of the saints. He says God is the primary actor in this edification, but he uses the preacher as a tool to strengthen saving faith and to promote sanctification. And so says Calvin, preaching is God's grand ordinance that he uses to uphold, rule, nurture, defend, assure, and preserve his church. As often then as God's fatherly love towards us is preached, let us know that there is given to us ground for true joy, that with peaceable consciences we may be certain of our salvation." reason number five faithful preaching is powerful because ultimately it impacts the nations again Calvin's vision you see isn't just local or national it's international preaching has international results Calvin says Ronald Wallace taught that preaching in a hidden way directs the whole course of human history it creates the disturbance among the nations that is to bring about the consummation of his eternal purpose Preaching is the banner which shall stand for an ensign to the peoples. And it is the sword in the hand of the church by which secretly and unknown, even to itself, the church rules or brings judgment amongst the nations. What an amazing thought. Powerful preaching, you see. Always has this, this twofold effect. It's a savior of life unto life. <laughs> or savor of death unto death. No one ever hears the preached word who walks away the same as when they came, Calvin says. For either the word saves or condemns, it renews or hardens. Preaching's vitality, therefore, does not depend, said Calvin, on how people respond to it. Preaching makes the godly more godly. But it also makes the ungodly often more ungodly. Calvin says, as the word is efficacious for the salvation of believers, so it is abundantly efficacious for the condemnation of the wicked. And so nothing is worse in all the world than rejecting the very word of God from the mouth of the servant of God. Through rejection, the world is constantly ripening itself for judgment. So preaching is powerful also to the ungodly, even in their condemnation. No crime, says Calvin, is more offensive to God than contempt of His Word. We don't really get that, do we? We sigh our breath when we hear that one of our members has committed adultery. We're overwhelmed. But when our people regularly, week by week, have contempt for the Word of God, we almost accept that as part of ministry. We don't see its heinousness. Neither do they. Calvin says the preached word is also powerful to the reprobate, as well as frightening and agonizing. Listen to his comments on Hebrews 4.12. The reprobate, though not softened, set up a brazen and an iron heart against God's word. Yet are they restrained by their own guilt. They indeed laugh, but it is a sardonic laugh. For inwardly they feel that they are, as it were, slain. And they are making evasions in various ways so as not to come before God's tribunal. But though unwilling, they are yet dragged there by this very word which they arrogantly deride. So that they may be fitly compared to furious dogs which bite and claw the chain by which they are bound. And yet they can do nothing. They still remain fast bound by the word. That's powerful. Sixthly, faithful preaching is powerful because it moves people to truly hear God's word. T.H.L. Parker writes, the preacher is only half the church's activity, a proclamation. Kelvin sees the people as being the other half, the members of the congregation. And that's why... Uh, Last year, I I, I read through a good chunk of Kelvin's sermons on Deuteronomy. And I was astonished at how often he's talking to his people about how to listen to the Word. Dozens of times. This is how you ought to listen to the Word. This is how you ought to judge a sermon. He's training them. Recently, I had to do a conference address on how to hear the Word in Mississippi. So I went to my study. I looked for resources. You know, there's 500 to 1,000 books on how to preach, right? HoloLens books everywhere. I only found one book, a few little chapters, one book on how to hear the word of God. Edward Bickerstaff, a 19th century Anglican, how to hear the word of God. We've got to train our people how to listen to the scriptures. Calvin taught them how they should come to the sermon, how they should listen during the sermon, and how they should do the sermon after the sermon. His goal was that the people would grasp the importance of preaching. That they would look forward to it as a supreme blessing, the supreme blessing of their week. And then this amazing statement. You, he said to his congregation, should participate in the sermon as actively as the minister himself. So listen, is an act of faith. And Calvin says, church members should have a willingness to obey God completely and with no reserve. Church members must be good pupils who sit at the feet of the preacher as if they are at the feet of Jesus Christ, their sovereign teacher. Now Calvin realized, of course, that most people don't listen that way. He was realistic. I counted once, 30 times in his institutes and in portions of his commentary on Acts, where he makes comments like this. This is a typical one. The same type of comment. If the same sermon is preached, say to a hundred people, twenty receive it with a ready obedience of faith, while the rest hold it valueless, or laugh, or hiss, or loathe at it. One 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 day he was really must have had a hard Sunday because he reduced the number twenty down to one. <laughs> but if profitable hearing was a problem in his day, what about our day? When we have to compete with all kinds of modern visual media that are Extremely powerful in themselves. Reason number seven. Faithful preaching is powerful because it is experiential. Calvin, by the way, used both the word experiential and experimental. And coming from the Latin, it means to really test our experiences. like an experiment by the word of God. Calvin wasn't for experience for experience sake. That's experientialism. But he was very much for experience the truths of the Bible in accord with the scriptures. For Calvin, experiential truth at preaching. Meant to know the great truths of the Bible. My personal experience. How, how matters ought to go. That's what we heard about the, his definition of faith last hour. But also how they do go is an important part of experiential preaching. How they ought to go. The Romans 8, victories through the spirit. How they do go. The Romans 7 struggles with my inner man. My sinful nature. And experiential preaching also always includes the end goal. God will bring us through to glory. I left the army in the United States the day I left. The, uh, the drill sergeant came to me and said, remember, I, I was in the reserves and I could possibly call back. He said, if you ever get called back and you go into war, you've got to remember three things about a war. you got to remember how it should go you got to remember what you learned here in the army. How to fight. You've got to remember how it does go because the war never goes the way it should go. It's bloody. It's messy. And then you've got to remember the end goal. You're fighting for Uncle Sammy said. You're fighting for the flag of the United States of America. I thought later when he said that to me, you know, that's really where we are at. Spiritualist Christians. We're, 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 we're soldiers. We have to come to church. We have to hear preaching like we're soldiers in battle. When we come into the church sanctuary, we're coming into a battle arena. Satan wants to take the word of God from us. But we need to hear the word. We need to know what we ought to be as a Christian so that we can stretch. We need to know what we are as struggling Christians so that we can identify with the struggles of Paul and be encouraged and our discouragement. We need to know the end goal. Once we will ever be with the Lord. Powerful preaching does that. Powerful preaching is always two things experientially. It's always discriminatory. It always separates the precious from the vile. It shuts the kingdom of heaven to one and opens it to the other. It's a key, says the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's Calvinistic. A key that opens and shuts. And Calvin says that's not always easy for a minister to do. The genuineness of faith, he says, is not always easily dissected and understood. Because the believer can experience so many contradictions, he writes, on a daily basis. He can feel forsaken of God even when he knows deep down he's not. Conflicting experiences such as hope and fear seem to cancel each other out. If fear gets the upper hand, we should throw ourselves wholly in the promises of God for our assurance. But to believe in God when experience seems to annul his promises takes great faith. But this experience of faith is precisely what enables believers to remain undisturbed when their entire world is shaken. So you see, Calvin, a lot of people today, a lot of people who promote Calvin versus the Calvinist theme and distance the Puritans far from Calvin, they forget that Calvin often speaks about false faith. He speaks about what resembles faith, but still lacks a saving territory, speaks of unformed faith, implicit faith, temporary faith, illusionary faith, false faith, shadowy faith, transitory faith, faith under a cloak of hypocrisy. You see, self-deception is a real possibility, says Kelvin. and self-examination, therefore, is essential. I wish David Fox Grover would bring his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation on Calvinism self-examination of the conscience into print. It's a masterful piece of work. Calvin says, in the meantime, the faithful are taught to examine themselves with solicitude and humility, as carnal security insinuate itself instead of the assurance of faith. But even in self-examination, Christ must be emphasized. I was dialoguing once actually with Tony Lane about this in he mentioned to me that in Calvin, self-examination is not so much am I trusting in Christ as much as it is, am I trusting in Christ? And I think that's right. And I think that's what the Puritans meant when they said, you must examine yourself, but for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, secondly, experiential preaching is always applicatory. It's always applicatory. Calvin says it must be applied, must be applied, must become our living experience. We must know the Lord. We must know the truths by intimate, personal, living experience. He says a believer's recognition of God consists more in living experience than in vain and high flown speculations. With experience as our teacher, I love this statement. With experience as our teacher, We discover God to be just as He declares Himself to be in His Word. You see, if you don't find your experience back in the Scriptures, it's probably experience from the devil, it's fabricated experience. But when you find your experience back in the Scripture, that vindicates that what you've experienced is indeed the very Word and truth of God. So Scripture is the foundation, Christ is the foundation of our experience. If that's not so, said Kelvin, we will be left with feelings that have no anger. And so Calvin avoids experientialism by always bringing our experience to the Word of God. Reason number eight, faithful preaching is powerful because it promotes piety. It promotes piety. Spoke a great deal on that yesterday. but Let me just say this very briefly. True religion is fellowship between God and man. And true preaching seeks to foster that. So Calvin's applications in preaching aimed for actually exciting those kinds of graces that would move the soul in fire. That's why he's always talking about childlike trust and humble adoration and godly fear and undying love. Ninthly, faithful preaching is powerful because it aims for God's glory. Calvin's ultimate goal in preaching too is of course, that won't surprise you, the glory of God. Everywhere you see, everywhere his preaching preaches God. God is the front. God is the center. The God of salvation. God is exalted. Man is abased. Powerful preaching, says Calvin. Stresses how heinous sin is. How amazing grace is. How sovereign God is. Christ is held before us as Savior. Who was horribly afflicted for our sins, he writes. And wonderfully resurrected for us. And clothed in the gospel before us. So in the preaching of the gospel, we see him in the mirror. We behold our mediator. The very image of God. So the preacher's purpose is always first of all directed to God. T.H.L. Parker says... He preaches in order that God may be glorified in Calvin's thinking. The very act of declaring the gospel is a praising and exalting of God in his mighty acts. Every sermon is a uniting with the heavens and all the powers therein. With the glorious company of the apostles, the goodly fellowship of the prophets, the noble army of martyrs, and the holy church throughout all the world in the corporate united praise and worship of God. And when the purpose is directed towards man... It does not lose its character of praise, of praise of God, for it is God who saves man, God who reforms man's lives, God who cares for man, preserves man, and therefore he is to be thanked and praised and worshipped. And finally, reason number ten. Faithful preaching is powerful because it is accompanied by heartfelt prayer. By heartfelt prayer. This is perhaps where we, where we fail most of all. When I studied at Westminster Seminary in the Reformation, Post-Reformation Theology Division 20-some years ago, I think the biggest question I wrestled with was this. Why? When you read the sermons of Luther accounts, sure, they're better than our sermons in many ways, but we're saying the same kinds of things today, albeit in a somewhat inferior way. But Why? they see so much blessing. Why we see so little? Is it just the sovereignty of God? And I came to this conclusion. Reformers, the post reformers, were often men of great prayer and they were blessed <coughs> at the throne of grace. They prayed over their sins. Not just before they preached, but after they came back home. You see that in their diaries and their writings. They go back to their room they can wrestle with God. That the, Satan would take away the word of He's going to shake their, their own sermon off. Wrestling for their people. How convicting the story is of, of John Welsh's wife. Her husband died. No, she said, she asked him that he prayed seven hours a day. Don't even, don't even try. Don't even come close to him. But she said he, he seldom prayed some slept through a whole night. He'd get up in the middle of the night, take his robe beside his bed, go off to, to the cold side room in northern Scotland, and he'd be praying. And she'd come out. She'd try to get him back to bed. She it was too sacred to go into the room, so she'd stand outside the door. She'd say, "John, honey, don't you think you should come back to bed? You're going to catch cold." And he'd say, "Oh, my dear." In a congregation of three thousand, I have three thousand souls to answer for. And I know not how it is with many of them. Let you be praying for them one by one? A man prays like that, who prays with power and lays hold of God and says, I will not let thee go, except thou bless my congregation also, will have powerful preaching. Could it be that our preaching is often so weak Because we are so perilous. We don't realize what preaching really is. In conclusion, Calvin's sermons weren't perfect. Actually, Theodore Beza has a wonderful, interesting, intriguing paragraph where he compares the preaching of Pharrell and Baret and Calvin. And he says this, Pharrell excelled in a certain sublimity of mind. So that nobody could hear, could either hear his thunders without trembling or listen to his most fervent prayers without feeling as if he were carried up into heaven. And Ray possessed such winning eloquence that his entranced audience hung upon his lips. But Calvin never spoke without filling the mind of the hearer with the most weighty sentiments. And I have often thought, a preacher compounded of the three put together would be the absolutely perfect <laughs> So Calvin obviously didn't have what Perel had. He didn't have what Veret had. So God doesn't ask us to use gifts we don't have. But he asks us to prayerfully and cheerfully and studiously and passionately use the gifts he has given us. He asks us to live to preach. May I put this on your conscience and on mine as I close? Are we living, really living, brothers in the ministry, to preach? I have a daughter who doesn't like to eat. She doesn't like to eat. She never has. The other day, my wife set some food in front of her. She didn't feel like eating. I don't know how she grows. She said to me, I eat to live. I don't live to eat. But a preacher can say, I live to preach. This is my food. This is my spiritual food. All that we could say with John Bunyan, I never did preach a sermon, but what I did smartingly feel myself. We need to know it. We need to experience it. We need to believe it need to be anointed by this Holy Spirit that gives us power in preaching. So what church needs today is not CEO administrators, not public relation manipulators, not ivory tower academicians, or felt needs ministers. What the church needs is ordinary, faithful, Bible expounding, Christ honoring, man humbling, God exalting, Christ centered preaching. Only this kind of word preached it changed the world as it did in Calvin's day. And so, independence on the Spirit of God. Let us preach. Preach biblically. Preach doctrinally. Preach experientially. Preach practically. It will change the world. A new generation of such preachers is this world's present greatest need. This is not optional. Faithful, powerful preaching is not optional. God demands it. And God gives it. And His people need it. And they relish it. And we preachers are responsible to pray for it. And provide it. May God help us. To preach. To dying people. To dying people. Of the living Savior. With so much love. that Our people will be able to look at us in the face and say. I think you love my soul more than I do myself. So let's pray for grace to get up on the pulpit, wanting to please God, to glorify Him. And let's present His Word clearly, forcefully, passionately, prayerfully, asking, use me, Lord. unleash Your power from the pulpit in the lives of Your people in the salvation of the lost. To your own glory. Let's pray. Great God of heaven. We thank thee that thou dost believe in preaching. And we pray that we would believe in it more. And that thou wouldst encourage us as we leave this place. To be faithful men of God. Seeking thy Holy Spirit in the study. On the pulpit. In pastoral counseling. Everywhere we go. Help us to see ourselves as marked men of God, set apart for prayer and for the ministry of the Word. Oh God, help us to live what we ought to be, servants of the Word, VDM. Help us to be nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. Help us to be determined to know nothing among our people, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Bless this conference. Bless LTS. Bless the John Owen Harford Center. Bless every minister of the gospel present here. Let thy kingdom come. And let us pray on that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down and visit thy vine. And that thy church would flourish. And that children and teenagers may rise up to call thee blessed. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.